Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Nixon's the one. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> Three shots were heard to ring out as Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy rode in the back seat of the open car. And Mrs. Kennedy shouted, oh, no. The motorcade sped on. Ten American presidents, from Washington to Obama. Yes, is a podcast yes, narrated by guest hosts, where the life and legacy of the ten most pivotal American presidencies is explored in depth and in color. My name is Dan Carlin. I'm Mike Duncan. My name is Zach Twomley. Each show is intercut with a musical score, and where possible, archive news clips to set you in the time of that presidency. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, J.R. As America concludes its 2020 election cycle, this month we present the election of 1960, a closely contested election where the telegenic Democratic Senator John F. Kennedy defeated incumbent Vice President Richard Nixon. Can you imagine if this country elects a Democratic House and elects Dick Nixon? Republican President of the United States. And then Lyndon Johnson and Sam Rayburn go over to meet with him and sit down with Dick Nixon, who in 1954 called me a liar. Some Republicans and many journalists believe that Kennedy benefited from vote fraud, especially in Texas, where his running mate Lyndon B. Johnson was senator, and in the northern state of Illinois. This is Vince Garrity broadcasting from outside of the Chicago Stadium in the heart of Chicago where we are watching one of the finest political parades seen in this country as a salute to Senator John F. Kennedy. More than 300 beautiful floats, bands, and marching units are proceeding down a two-mile road here on Madison Street in Chicago under the leadership of Chicago's mayor, Richard J. Daley. These two states were important because if Nixon had won both, he would have earned 270 electoral votes, one more than the 269 needed to win the presidency. In Illinois, still unfinished, Kennedy ahead 34,850 precincts in Illinois still out, 400 of them in Cook County, a half in Chicago. Kennedy won a 303 to 219 electoral college victory and is generally considered to have won the national popular vote by just under 113,000 votes, a margin of just 0.17%. Relive this election. The first election of the modern television age, on 10 American presidents this month. As I look at the board here, the, there are still some results still to come in. If the present trend continues, Senator Kennedy will be the next president of the United States.
Rodgers. And I want you. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who is uh, in my beloved Bay Area. The sun is out, the sky is blue. In two months' time, there'll be no more Trump. Awesome. Uh, today, <laughs> we're taking a deep dive into British politics and we're joined by my old mucker, my old pal, writer, pundit, and all-round sparky person, Mick Wright, who's in Norwich. The ex-deputy head of policy for the Liberal Democrats, Steve O'Neill, who's in um, sunny Brixton. Writer and all-round chameleon, Emma Burnell, in Walthamstow, which is also in London. And by political commentator and favourite tweeter of Donald Trump, Mike Holden, in... Where are you, Mike? I'm in Burnley. Burnley. You know what? I had write, written down here, Preston or Wigan. And I was really wrong either. From the south, that's near enough. I feel. All these northern towns, all these northern mill towns, they all roll into one, don't they? They all look the same to you. Uh, uh, they do. Um, folks, say hello. 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 In a week that has seen the UK prepare for a low-key Xmas, we turn to the UK, the land of my birth, for a deep dive into British politics. Nearly two weeks into England's lockdown, MPs have demanded to know what's going to happen when it officially ends on December the 2nd. Scientists have been warning that stronger restrictions may well be needed, although the Health Secretary would not be drawn on that issue today. The Office for National Statistics has just reported the highest number of weekly deaths involving COVID-19 since the middle of May. Our health and social care editor, Victoria MacDonald, is in the newsroom. These are pretty devastating figures, Victoria. What do they say about the impact of the current lockdown? Well, this is the ninth consecutive week that there has been an increase in the number of deaths and the second consecutive week where it's gone over that 1,000 mark. Now, you have to remember that deaths are a lag. They're from infections three, four weeks ago sometimes. And so it doesn't tell us much about England's lockdown measures at this stage. Right, guys, uh, first off, um, the country is in lockdown. So I'm going to come to you all one by one and ask you, um, what does a British or, dare I say, an English lockdown look like? Emma, why don't you start? Well, I've been texting my ex-boyfriend all day, so, you know, that's how my lockdown looks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Um, Was but, he your uh, ex-boyfriend before today? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's uh-huh. been my ex-boyfriend for a long time, but we he's also the... Um, the last person I was intimate with, should we put it that way, <laughs> uh, just before lockdown happened. And he's a great friend of mine. He's been having girl trouble. I'm actually quite good at advising him about his girl trouble. Goodness. Well, um, I, I feel, Emma, 
we should maybe move on. Uh, this almost feels like a takeaway of the week, you know, getting in contact with your ex. Um, Steve, you're in South London and Emma is in North London. Um, have you been texting your ex today? How's your lockdown been, sir? No, no, no. I, I've no texting exes. I've been talking to my current girlfriend. Uh, we are stuck in a small flat together, so that is um, we're managing that. It's pretty bleak. It's probably pretty bleak in North, bleak in North London too. Um, so it's a case of sort of like huddling in and watching The Crown and other things like that. If I watch The Crown, we will know that I have finally given in to the to the despair. <laughs> oh, no, no. Well, you have to have given in because we're going to talk about The Crown later. Uh, Mick Wright over there in Norwich, uh, Hello, the most son. beautiful uh, city. Day to day, how's lockdown if you're well, in I have to uh, say, I have to say, Well, we, we just moved out of London um, back here to the, the city of my birth in the gap between the last lockdown and this current lockdown. Uh, it's pretty good, actually. Mask adherence in Norwich is much better than in London, I, I found. We live in the city, near enough in the city centre in a very quiet medieval bit of the city centre, but the city centre nonetheless is pretty good. Most days just walk with uh, my stepkid to a school and walk back and then I sit here and work on a book that I'm uh, helping to put together for someone on this podcast, Mr. Rothwell Brown. <laughs> and... Nice. 20 well, chapters of it in the folder now, so we've only six off it being done. Brilliant. I don't know how you've even got time to be on this podcast, sir. Well, someone invited me, <laughs> sort of contradictory to the fact that I owe you a book, so come on. <laughs> Mike, you're over there in Blackburn, aren't you? Uh, Burn, so, Burnley. Yeah. Don't ever Blackburn. Blackburn. Blackburn, Burnley, Barnsley. Burnley. It's a very different place. Mike, he's no, going to no, name no, a Bur different northern town every time he mentions you. Yeah, well, probably, exactly. Yeah. That, that's what I'm going for. So, Mike, you're over there in Stockport, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, what's ma mask adherence like over there? Uh, it's pretty good. Um, Burnley, which is where I am, and, and the surrounding areas were already in tier three before we moved into the, the full lockdown. People were already isolating at home, uh, not going to work very much. I've been, to, I've been into work. I've, I've not missed because um, the work I do involves um, allowing other people to do this kind of thing. So uh, I'm providing a, a service uh, like this for other people that need to be in work. So uh, I've been going in. But um, yeah, the lockdown's been in place de facto for several months. And it, yeah, mask adherence is pretty good now. Um, so so what, what, what does that mean on, on a practical level? What types of businesses are closed, open, etc.? And I'll do a compare and contrast with here in California. As has been the case for, uh, as I say, quite a few months really, uh, all the pubs have been shut from uh, uh, completely now and they were open up till 10 o'clock um restaurants are still open essential businesses are open so um uh, healthcare etc gyms and things like that are all closed the shops are a bit of a funny setup some shops seem to be okay because they sell food so they can then sell whatever they like but shops that are just selling clothes etc they're closed good good to know it's just that over here I'm, I'm on the, in the East Bay of um, Northern California, so just opposite San Francisco. And restaurants here are actually now starting to open up again, inside dining, but only a capacity of 25%. And 
because the the climate here is so benign what a lot of them have actually been able to do is have um is to take over the street the pavement actually in front and actually go into the road so a road like telegraph street in oakland is actually being transformed into this kind of eating boulevard it's actually been um it's incredibly pleasant pleasant experience um but just about everything is open but there's a real lack of traffic on, on the road that's here that's crazy the number of new cases you're still reporting in California is crazy that that's the current set up. Mask adherence here is incredibly strong, though. Um, so everybody walking down the street outdoors is wearing a mask. So where are the people contracting the coronavirus in California? Because you do have very... It was Southern California which had the, the real big spike. There was a secondary spike in San Francisco some months ago, and there are some isolated cases in, on the East Bay. But fundamentally, California, specifically Northern California, has actually been, been very good. It's been very, very good. And as I say, very different to when I was in Germany this summer, Everybody in Germany, outdoors, no masks. But as soon as you go into anywhere, indoors, whatever, the mask came on. Here, masks are on all the time. The only time you'll see somebody outdoors without a mask on in, in the East Bay is if they're driving their car. Then the uh, I'll be on. honest, I don't wear a mask outside unless I'm going to be in a big crowd. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've talked about this before. I, I wear masks as isn't required. Um, yeah. But I wear masks absolutely inside. People are even running with masks on, which I tried to walk up a steep hill the other day with a mask on. I, I nearly died of oxygen starvation. It was, it was killing me. If you see somebody without a mask on outside, when they come 10 yards towards you, they'll put their mask on. But most people will still keep them on out, outdoors. Look, what I wanted to do... Yeah, go on, Mike. Yeah, go on. Is there a political element to it? Are the areas where the absolutely absolutely more... this is a one of the big differences between I think the US and the UK. Bear in mind that I'm not travelling all throughout the US. I'm not. I'm in the most liberal bit of the most liberal state, and people here are very keen to follow health directives here. Very keen to, and this is an extremely democratic state. People here believe in science. They, be, you know, they're willing to give the medical experts uh, the benefit of the doubt, and they don't see that in, in any way that's encumbering uh, their liberty at all. Whereas places like Oklahoma, North Dakota, now the governors mandating mask wearing but it's different from state to state in other words people weren't necessarily doing it and stuff so it, it is very different depending on where you are in the state and it is a very cultural forward slash political act that you're actually doing by wearing your mask so but what i want to do is basically get a real sense of how covid has um changed and shaped 2020 british politics steve why, why don't you go first if you had to really Think of this year, let's say it's December 31st, and between now and December 31st, nothing else is specifically going to happen. How do you sum up how COVID has shaped British politics? Think back to a year ago from now, and we had Boris Johnson riding high, just won, or well, a little bit under a year ago, we had just won an election, an unexpected landslide, and Labour were absolutely... Uh, rock bottom at the time. I think this year has been a story polit politically of those two things going up the direction. It's gone pretty much consistently downhill for Boris and his government. We'll, we'll perhaps talk about this week 
uh, be an example of that shortly. And for Labour, we've seen a new leader come in and make a really good impression. The little bit of analysis behind that, I think, is that Johnson won that election based on Brexit identity, social conservatism, building a coalition of that kind. And what the pandemic has done is said to people, actually, the priority is to think about health, to think about the economy. And for that, you want competence. Uh, and so we're on to what I think the political scientists call valence politics and looking for competent leadership. And Keir Starmer has done a great job of that. And I think that's what's going to continue. Steve is completely right. The pandemic has split the narrative from we want a rebel who's going to change everything to actually we'd quite like to be a bit more stable, <laughs> a bit more just just stayed, I guess. Um, and Keir Starmer is offering that in a way that Boris Johnson is not. Boris has always been the, the fun guy, the interesting guy, uh, the guy you want to clown around with in the good times. He's never been the guy you want in charge in the bad times, and we are in the worst times. And I think Thumb is offering a really, really cohesive uh, opposition to that. Mike, you're over there in Newcastle. How has COVID informed, let's say, the north-south divide in British politics? Very not, obviously... Not even in the northwest. But... <laughs> <laughs> Stop it, you. Stop it, you. You're over there in Burnley, Mike. There you go. Just to pick on something that Steve said, the Tories had a thumping political uh, majority, in part built on this supposed red wall. How has COVID gone to inform that? Burnley was part, it is part of the red wall. It's the heart of the red wall. It was a a long-standing Labour heartland that went to a, a Tory MP. A lot of those people are now beginning to realise that they made something of a mistake doing that because the idea of levelling up is just, it's a myth. There's no sense of levelling up. And in fact, it's been levelled down when when there's been regional variations in lockdown and regional variations, more importantly, in the assistance that regions will get, that's all disappeared. And, you know, no offence to our London friends here, but when London was starting to see an increase in, in cases, the whole country was locked down. And when London started easing off, the whole country was let loose and we're now back into a spike. And then when the spikes come into the regions, not only do we have to put up with the restrictions, the help wasn't there. There was a very big argument with uh, Andy Burnham, uh, Manchester Metro Mayor, over just getting funding that we needed that had already been available up till the point where they went from a, a national lockdown to regional. No, Mike's 100% right. And I, I'm, I'm from North London, which is the, the, the posher bit of, of London. Uh, Steve, I've been, I've been to London. <laughs> One of the best things that I've ever done in my career is spend three years working for a local government think tank where I went around and I visited town halls across the country. And actually, it's really important that we get out of Whitehall, we get out of Westminster, we get out of SW1. The one thing I would say, and, and, and to speak to what Mike is saying, it's like in the East, we have a different issue, which is COVID cases here have been extremely low. Um, and we're pretty much getting um, screwed here uh, when cases are low to do with, um, basically to do with how people live here. There aren't a lot of, it's less densely populated and, and there are fewer multi-occupancy homes like i've just come from tower hamlets where i'm still a school governor and the issues there are huge because you've got the highway runs through the middle of tower hamlets and on one side of the highway you've got tower blocks with 
a lot of people who work in frontline jobs who are living in places where there's eight to 10 people in very small flats. And on the other side, you've got like uh, what happened in the eighties, which is big yuppie style flats, which one of which I used to just live in where there was no COVID. So there's literally COVID on one side and no COVID on the other side. The thing I would say also, sorry to be a party pooper on the Keir Starmer front, but Starmer's not polling amazingly. Now, I don't want to get into the any other leader would be 20 points ahead meme, but so beloved of the left, uh, <laughs> of which I am slightly part of on Twitter, the, the sort of the, the kind of. But what I would say is YouGov have got, has got Starmer and, and Labour Party polling uh, two points ahead of the Conservatives, but that's the best polling they've got from, from the main polling companies. Yeah, you've got a few with the dead heat, but in some other places, they're still polling, um, you know, a small Conservative lead. Uh, poll company I, I, I find most amenable to my thinking um, is, uh, is Delta Poll, which have got, still got the Conservatives with a three-point lead, but Starmer having, uh, you know, r- rising in the polls there. So the, thing, the notion that Starmer is like this competent, amazing thing, yeah, maybe, and I get why people see he, him as, as competence versus borrowed as incompetence. But on the other hand, particularly over here, talking to people over here, a lot of people see him as quite robotic, quite cold. They don't, they don't think he comes at Boris hard enough. And, and I would be of that opinion. I don't think, I know that he shouldn't shout at Boris Johnson in PMQs, but often he lets him, he, he, he doesn't follow up with the punches. And I think an opposition needs to be a bit more aggressive. Uh, Steve, you used to be in bed with, with, with the Lib Dems. Seems to me that they've disappeared in this uh, global pandemic. If there is any form of an intellectual opposition, it does appear to be coming from Labour and Keystone. And, and I'm saying if, I'm saying a big if. Marcus uh, Rashford. We're coming on to Sir Marcus Rashford later. But, but Steve, uh, what are the Lib Dems doing and why do they still even exist? Honestly, I should probably come on and offer an impassioned defence. I'm a little bit, actually, though, of a strange Lib Dem. I'm starting to be very attracted to Keir Starmer's sort of moderate centre-left kind of guy. So maybe that's a different story. Very quickly, what happened to the Lib Dems in a sort of really rapid recap? I don't, again, switch back. This time, just under a year ago, they were polling at 20%. It looked like a big comeback. It didn't happen. The revoke Article 50 thing went all horribly wrong. Uh, and since then, I think they haven't really known what to do or where to go. They've got a new leader in Ed Davey, who was sort of inaugurated. He arrived in August. But like you say, Royfield hasn't really made an impact. And I think that comes down to the sort of age old kind of questions. Like, what, what are they for? And there's a whole different bunch of things that they could have been for. And sometimes they were for when I worked for them. But to run them off quickly, you can compare can be a split of difference. Moderate party for moderation will that's kind of gone since the Brexit stance. There could be a single issue Brexit party. Well, Brexit's done, so that's gone. More traditionally, you can be one of two other things. One is a, a liberal party. So that's a party that cares about civil liberties, devolution, political reform, all those kind of things, not so much bread and butter economic stuff. And the final, final thing is just a slightly left of centre um, social democrat party. I kind of think that, that um, Labour is sort of filling that space right now. So I don't really have answers. And I think... Uh, those are some of the reasons why they are stuck at about five or six percent in the polls. Mike, 
You talked about the fact that um, Andy Burnham's been able to create um, a real splash in terms of trying to get extra funds for for Greater Manchester. But then also the fact that when London had its big spike initially at the start of the pandemic, the whole country had to lock down, regardless of what the cases were around the rest of the United Kingdom. Could you give us a real sense outside of necessarily just the North West, how potentially COVID is weakening the United Kingdom and the political bonds. Obviously, um, we have Scotland, uh, there is uh, Wales, etc. And then the, the various English regions and cities. Well, that's what I was going to say. You can see straight away that um, the devolved nations have uh, taken a different approach, uh, subtly different, uh, but not uh, but, uh, different to, to the one that uh, that Boris has taken in, uh, in England. I was going to say in London, but in England, yeah. And in fact... Um, in Scotland, they've played a bit of a blinder because they've tended to be just one jump ahead of, uh, of Johnson in the implementation of more stringent measures, and and the graphs have tended to follow closely, but not 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 exactly uh, the same. And as you say, uh, Wales before we went into a full nationwide lockdown, Wales closed the borders and uh, refused to allow us uh, Sassanaxin, and, and and as I alluded to earlier on it's not just the developed nations it's the regions as well some of the regions the, the, the episode with Andy Burnham was a, was a classic of, of the kind that um, Andy Burnham could literally stand there and say we need this money because it's what we had before and the restrictions you're putting on us are to all intents and purposes the same as, as uh, they have been and Boris and, and Dominic Cummings were walking away Nick, what's going on? Well, it's a case of a power struggle continuing even after the resolution of that power struggle. So the accounts of what happened today are completely at loggerheads. So I've been told by authoritative sources, and indeed versions of this account are on the front pages tomorrow, that relations today between the Prime Minister and his departing aides, that's Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane, that those relationships, as I was told, completely went off a cliff edge. So what I was told was that at around about two o'clock, the Prime Minister's team learnt that from within Downing Street, the Dominic Cummings team were briefing against the Prime Minister, describing him as indecisive, which I was told is code for he didn't agree with Dominic Cummings. I was also told that they had heard that that team had briefed against the Prime Minister's partner, Carrie Simons, um, for uh, speaking out against the appointment of Lee Kane as Chief of Staff. That was obviously the issue that created this row all this week. The Prime Minister later on called a meeting and said, I was told words to the effect of, I know what you're up to, it is time to leave. And then we saw obviously that abrupt departure. That account is strongly disputed by the team who've left Downing Street, described to me as a total lie. Yes, there was a 45 minute between the Prime Minister and Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane. It was described to me as very friendly and very warm. The Prime Minister reportedly said to them, I want to get the band back before the next general election. Lee Kane presented the Prime Minister with those famous gloves from the general election, which said, get Brexit done. He get Brexit done. He signed them for Lee Kane. Um, after Dominic Cummings left, uh, there was a, a meeting in the press office. The Prime Minister came down 
Brown gave a speech about Lee Kane, and then Lee Kane was banged out. That's what happens in the world of newspapers. You get banged out of an office. And uh, the Prime Minister reportedly characterised what had happened as, we have good relations, but the relationship is over, and therefore you cannot live uh, under the same roof. You can't live together, described as there being no ill will. Let's come on to Dominic Cummings. Please. The majority of the listeners to this podcast are not based in the UK. So, uh, Mick, I'm coming on to you. Who was Dominic Cummings and why Why was he seen walking out of 10 Downing Street with a big cardboard box? Well, first off, uh, Dominic Cummings was, um, was was the chief strategist for Vote Leave and, 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 and almost has a kind of... Um, messianic following amongst certain members of, of the right and the conservative right because he made brexit happen in their view i think that's a really um simplistic way of looking about why that campaign happened he played that campaign at on the easiest level because honestly the other side were incompetent in the extreme now prior to to, to being involved in the vote leave campaign dominic cummings was uh, a special advisor for Michael Gove at Education, a very poisonous influence there, involved in a, like a, an anonymous Twitter account that attacked people in the press he didn't like. Well, a bully. Um, he was David Cameron disliked him to such an extent that he tried to prevent him from coming into government, but failed to do so. After the Brexit um, referendum and after the fall of Theresa May, finally, and the ascension of Boris Johnson, he brings Dominic Cummings into number 10 to be his sort of brain. The thing, I think the thing that's really key as well is that Boris Johnson fundamentally doesn't really have a political agenda. And, and the way that we're looking at it this, uh, this week, particularly with people watching The Crown, obviously Thatcher's back in people's minds. And the thing about Margaret Thatcher, for good or for ill, and I, I believe for ill, she was a conviction politician who had certain things she wanted to achieve and therefore tried to achieve those things. Whereas you look at Boris Johnson and all he really wants to achieve is what he wanted to achieve when he was a child, which is to be world king. And if he can't be world king, he'll be prime minister. And so he moved policymaking over to Dominic Cummings, who essentially was allowed to run the government for the for up until recently, at which point we believe Cummings has been pushed out of government because he might have insulted Carrie, who is uh, Boris Johnson's partner, who now we're being told is running the country. But this is all kind of palace intrigue rubbish, right? The reality is that Cummings hasn't gone anywhere and isn't going to go anywhere, really. He's just moving into more of a Cardinal Richler type position, a, more, a much more of an Eminence Grease position. He's not as clever as he thinks he is, but he's more clever than a lot of his enemies. You can always win if you don't play the rules, right? So I can beat you at chess if I turn the board over and say we were playing drafts in the first place. And that's what Cummings always does. He doesn't play by the rules. Ergo, he always wins because he's playing a game with rules he's defined. Is that what we saw, Emma? I will completely admit I've not been paying close attention to UK politics for, for the last month or so. All of a sudden, I saw this bloke walk out of 10 Downing Street with a cardboard box. And I thought to myself, how to utterly humiliate somebody, not realising he's staged the whole thing. His office is actually down the road and whatever. Tell me a little bit more about this Machiavellian Cardinal Richelieu figure. Well, if he's Cardinal Richelieu, that means that uh, Boris Johnson is the Sun King. I mean, to be That's honest... exactly what I was I saying. Think, I think Mick and I disagree over the role that Dom plays. I think Mick gives Dom far too much credit. Um, why are you calling him Dom? I don't know why I'm calling him Dom. <laughs> He's not your pal. He's certainly not mine. 
I think you've got better taste than that. That's what I'd say. That is absolutely true. All of my doms have more hair. Um, yeah, and also, <laughs> you did not sexually turned on by men who look like the Mekon from the Dan Dare comics. He anyway, does look like the Mekon. That has to be said. I think he writes his own myth really well. I just don't believe his myth. I just yeah, but here's the, here's the thing. I'm not saying that I agree with his myth. Like I, I said, he's, he's not as clever as he or people in the media, particularly the Laura Koonsbergs of this world, who took him as a very direct source on everything, believe him to be. But he was more vicious, more willing to be vicious than some of his rivals. And ultimately... Machiavellian shit, well, that's whatever in Westminster, but being willing to be brutal does get you somewhere. It no, does that, get you somewhere. Fair, and it does, and it has. And it's got him somewhere, but it's also lost him his job. It, it's fair to say, yes, that Dominic Cummings may, may have been the cleverest man in the room, but it wasn't a very clever room to start with, was it, really? Mm. The, the people that have been appointed to cabinet have been there. All right, let's talk about clever. Let's talk about clever, or at least people who've been able to use PR masterfully. Marcus Rashford, Mike Holden, who is Marcus Rashford and how has he shaped uh, UK government policy this year? Well, he's going to win Sports Personality of the Year this year. That's, that's, who is that's he first, given. sir? Uh, he's, a, he's a Manchester United footballer, but uh, besides uh, his uh, undoubted talent in, on the football field, his, his campaigning this year has turned the government on its head. I've lost count of how many U-turns there have been that have been purely because Marcus Rashford has said, we need to do this. And government have said, we're not going to do it. All right, Steve, can you take us through some of those government U-turns that Marcus Rashford has been able to uh, force the government into? Okay, I'll, I'll do my best. So it's a few weeks ago, so my memory might not be perfect, but it was concerning free school meals. So normally... Pupils from uh, lower income backgrounds get their school lunches paid for. It, it used to be measured in some old time benefits measure. Don't know who's receiving welfare. I can't remember what the up to date measure is, but a subset of, of kids get their meals uh, paid for. And what happened first time round during the uh, lockdown because schools were closed, the campaign was to continue to provide meals or money or some support for those meals during lockdown. Uh, the next, uh, the government had the same thing and, and conceded to Marcus Rashford's campaign on that. Uh, and then there was another iteration of it where he said, what's well, continue them in the holidays. Again, the government uh, so dragged its heel, but eventually uh, conceded on that. And I think now he is uh, uh, moving on in a broader way to look at other things, but I'm not sure what the next one, the next one is. But in both cases, the, as Mike said, the situation has been, Marcus Rashford's called for something. The government said, oh, no, definitely not. And Marcus Rashford has, has won the battle. And the I just chip in one second here. One second there, Mike. Uh, and yeah, the sorry. why this campaign is so close to his heart is because he grew up on having free school meals. He he had a very deprived uh, background. So this is something which he's ac absolutely lived, isn't it? Uh, Mike, you were about to say. Social broadening, let's call it, uh, has, has taken a turn this week in that he's announced this week that he's starting a, a book club. Now, I've not looked into the details of this, but... Um, Again, it seems to be a, a way of socialising education for, for the less well-advantaged. And that's, that's literally come out of the news in the past day. It remains to be seen where that goes, whether it leads to any more government U-turns. Uh, so as uh, the actions of uh, Marcus Rashford, has he basically put, I don't know, this is going to sound a little bit trite, has he put kind of poverty and the economic divide? Is it now a real issue again in, in UK politics, can we say? Uh, what do you reckon, Emma? The worst part is, why wasn't it already? I mean, seriously, 
Like uh, we've been so divided economically for so long. It's insane that we haven't been talking about this. And there was maybe a few good years in the early 90s, I guess, um, maybe late 90s, where we were kind of, oh, everything's going to get better. But actually, things didn't get better enough for too many people. And that's a really important factor that we don't talk about enough. We really, really don't. And actually, um, economic depression has been far too underrated for far too long. Mm. Um, um, Steve, I, I, I want to slowly wind this down before we come on to the most important burning issue of this podcast, which is going to be the crown. Steve, I am... I always kind of question the role of the Lib Dems, but specifically if, and this is a big if, right, we have the party nominally, which is right of centre, being forced to do many U-turns around child poverty, around poverty, around the economic divide. And then you have traditionally the party, which is uh, left of the political divide, which is all about that. Where does that give the, the Lib Dems any kind of wriggle room? Where can they uh, specifically uh, have a very clear and marked and unique agenda around uh, economic inequality? Well, I think it's quite difficult because, as you say, if you're a party that leans slightly centre-left, you're going to want to stick close to the kind of narrative that, that you want to provide more support for people who are uh, more disadvantaged. Um, and that's generally where the Lib Dems have been. Now, what happened in the coalition years was they found themselves in, you can say that the blame sits on their door as much as anyone else's, but they found themselves in a position of having to sort of compromise with conservatives in government who wanted to cut welfare at the time, which, by the way, back in 2010, that was popular. Um, and people thought it was, uh, well, people thought austerity was needed, whether it were, whether you ha could, when you had to cut uh, some of the support for the poorest, I, I'm a bit more doubtful. You, you, could, you could bounce books other ways. No, I, I don't think there is that much of a, uh, a distinctive Lib Dem kind of message on uh, when you're thinking about social welfare itself, what they'll normally focus on and what they have done historically would be to say, yes, well, that's very good, but it's really about empowerment and ed education and doing that better, enabling people to improve their circumstances. Skill so, wallets, Joe well, and skill well, exactly. wallets. And, and you illustrate a great problem because a lot of that doesn't really cut through, particularly during a pandemic, particularly during what's been a tough decade after the financial crash. Just talking about that education and being world-class education doesn't do it when we're, we're kind of panic stations. But that will tend to be their, their sort of attitude will be about let's try and uh, be positive and empowering. Steve, hmm. I, have a, I, have a, I have a specific question for you about uh, uh, one thing uh, within the Lib Dem coalition years, which was, and, and it's a tweet of Polly McKenzie's that gets pulled up a lot now, which is where she's telling the story of the, pl of the plastic bag tax, right? And she says, well, you know, we only just got this policy through and all we, we had to do was um, concede on some benefit cuts, right? And that was just expressed as like just a matter of fact thing. And it, it boggles my mind that a, that a senior advisor, that was the thinking, you know, oh, well, we got the plastic bag tax, but we did have to cut benefits, like, I mean, I, I certainly can't justify trading plastic bag tax for benefit cuts. That's, that's mad. Now, I should say, I know Polly quite well. She was my boss, essentially, or, or near enough to it when I worked for Lib Dems. And she's one of the cleverest people I've ever met. 
She's incredible. I'm not attacking her in particular, and, but it was just interesting and, the way she phrased that. You know, that's what yeah, had to happen, yeah. you know. Uh, the, the reality was you had, you had this kind of horse trading. So that was an example leading up to a Lib Dem conference. And basically the party leaders want to stand up and make announcements. And they're trying to get, and what they're trying to do is say, right, I want to announce this. You this won thing. some things. I won, it won yeah. some things. And so another example of that was helping young people with, with bus fares. It's all a little bit small. I'll, I'll take that. It's not right to be trading that with benefits. And I suspect Polly probably thinks back and think that was a miss, a misstep. The Lib Dems perhaps made the wrong compromises, but a lot of them genuinely didn't want to be doing those kind of horrible things. Maybe their priorities were a bit wrong at the time, but um, uh, that was the context. Talk, talking about context, um, we are uh, still living in the shadow of the uh, neoliberal world that Margaret Thatcher helped create when she came to power in 1979. And uh, hopefully we are seeing the end of this economic and political legacy. Uh, <laughs> right is, uh, yeah, is, as is Emma, hopefully. I, and I would say this, that for the first time in I forget how long, more people... And I forget who actually did the poll. I'm going to say YouGov put out a poll in the last month saying that more Brits now believe that people should have be given higher benefits than any time since uh, since since the 1980s. So there is a, some kind of a sheath change happening in British attitudes to do with the welfare state. If we are still living in the shadow of, of Margaret Thatcher to a greater or lesser degree, and Boris Johnson sees himself as some kind of Thatcherite. Um, does, does this mean that um, watching The Crown, the new, uh, the new season of The Crown on Netflix, I must admit, uh, as somebody who has watched seasons one, two, and three, and thoroughly enjoyed them, um, for the first time, it was relaying events which I actually knew. The, the the foreshadowing of the death of Mountbatten. I thought, okay, the Mountbatten's going to die now. I remember see, seeing that on the news. First off, I need uh, one or two lines. I'm going to go through you all. Give me a hot take on The Crown. This series is incredibly important in informing how other people outside of Britain actually see our country, for right or wrong. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Your party has won the election. It is my very great pleasure to invite you to form a government in my name. Congratulations, Prime Minister. Thank you, ma'am. Please, your family must be very proud. You've two children? Yes, but grown up now and out of the house. And your husband is retired, is that right? Yes, but he won't get in the way if that's what you're asking. Dennis is very good at taking care of himself. His golf clubs will be in the hallway. He will come and go as he pleases. He knows how busy I will be and how hard I intend to work. To business, then. Have you decided on your first cabinet? I have. It may surprise you to learn that I enjoy predicting ministerial comings and goings. It's like the races. I like to study form and odds. Who's in, who's out? I also like to predict cabinets. My best so far was Mr. Wilson's secondary shuffle. I got 90%. Would you like to hear my predictions for yours? I'm assuming no women. Women? In cabinet. Oh, certainly not. Well, not just because there aren't any suitable candidates, but I have found women in general tend not to be suited to high office. Oh, why is that? Well, they become too emotional. I doubt you'll have that trouble with me. Mike Holden, go. I'm just bringing up a panel that tells me who's in it. So, uh, <laughs> All right, I'm going to come back to you then, uh, Mike. Mick, two lines quickly on The Crown. Uh, I would say, look, I, I, I think The Crown is a, a brilliant soap opera, but it has no bearing on, on, on anything, really. So I think it's ridiculous that the Daily Mail is angry that it's not historically accurate. And I also think it's ridiculous that people think the Queen tried to t- stop Margaret Thatcher from doing certain things. She never did. In fact, when, 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 the, when Margaret Thatcher um, was pushed out of office, the Queen gave her the Order of Merit, which is only in the gift of the Sovereign and is only given by the Sovereign to people they like. So... Don't be fooled into thinking that the Queen is some sort of soft lefty. She's the most hard conservative you've ever met. Uh, also, down with uh, up with the Republic. That was more, more than t- more than two lines from Mick Wright. Uh, Steve O'Neill. I, I mean, I, I think that's a little bit harsh on the Queen from Mick, but actually, I think the news <laughs> has actually painted the royal family in a more realistic light. I think it was the first few were like a love letter to the royal family, and this is quite. Some of, the, some of the bits are quite dark, I think, particularly around when you think of the plight of what happened to Princess Diana. And actually, a plenty of victim of this is Charles kind of seemingly being pushed into a marriage he didn't want to go into. And, that, and that's the thing that's really stuck with me. Emma. Um, so I watched the first two series of The, Queen, uh, of the Crown um, because we did it for our podcast, The Zeitgeist Tapes. Literally the second series culminated in Andrew's birth. I mean, that's how exciting it got. Not for me. You, you didn't like the Abba Van episode. I thought that was fantastic. I did. Abba, Abba 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 episode. That was in series Abba three. Abba series three, yeah. For second episode of series three. Um, oh, okay. And also, I'm not that interested in apology. Uh, Apologetica about, you know, the people who have more wealth than anyone else going, oh, well, it's okay that we have more wealth than anyone else because, you know, sometimes we care about Welsh people. Mike Holden, now you've had, what, about three minutes to do a bit of research. The one thing that does strike me about it is, um, is it it still Olivia Colman playing the Queen? It is. Yeah, it It is. Uh, Olivia Colman is is a pretty left-wing actor. It does strike me that um, it's interesting that uh, some of the people who are being brought up, I mean, uh, Gillian Anderson playing uh, Margaret Thatcher, that's uh, 
that causes some conflict. There's some internal conflict going on there when you say Gillian Anderson, as we used to see her, and now playing Margaret Thatcher, who's reviled in this town and in Newcastle and in Stockport and in most of West. <laughs> and, and in all the other places that 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 yeah. that, 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 that we've put you today. <laughs> yeah, north of the Thames. I'm going to agree with, with, with Steve um, here, is that specifically in this season, this doesn't paint the royal family in a great light at all. On to episode four, the stuff around Princess Diana is pretty dark. Very obviously, there's a whole load of stuff made up here. It's not as dark as it really got, though. Like, I just don't care. <laughs> She's also quite posh. And, and this is one of the things which I think this season does lack is the, the social yearly document which happened in the seasons one two and three it is very clear that this happened where this abba in this year or etc etc uh for the first four episodes seems to be all around charles and and, the, and this wedding though in the last episode you do get the start of the falklands war but i i just throw this in because i know that a lot of people over here are watching it and take it as read uh, that this is actually what happened. And a lot of people around the world, for right or for wrong, this is a great instrument of British soft power and telling a version of uh, British history. Uh, Mick, it's nothing uh, last to do word. with British soft power. Nothing to do with British soft power. Oh, no, 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 it's no. nothing to do with British soft power. Oh, go, go on, go on. classical use of the phrase soft power is a soap opera made by an American company funded with American money that makes money for that American company. It's nothing to do with the British soft power. Uh, uh, by the by, quickly jump back to what you said, which is when are we going to be a more equal country, et cetera, et cetera. We'll be a more equal country when we get rid of aristocracy as a concept, when we get rid of the notion that if you come out of a particular womb, you're magic. And if you don't, you're not. And people talk about service to this country that the queen has done. My gran is 89 years old and she's done a hell of a lot for this country with, with like blood, sweat and tears rather than waving at people. And oh, she once drove an ambulance in World War II. Well, well done. This is the reason why this programme is a demonstration of British soft power. It's soft British cultural power. The very fact there is a programme about the British royal family, doesn't matter how fictitious it actually is, and it's the fact that... Americans. One second, Mick, one second. You just want the last word. Well, it's my podcast. <laughs> Oh, well, I think you'll find I was a co-founder of this podcast, no, so don't that, try that one on me. That, that is true, that is true, right? However, people around the world have a fascination with this specific family because they are British. It is the British royal family. Emma, there's no they're point the in taking Kardashians. They're the British Kardashians. They're, they're just a soap opera. I don't care whether they are or not. People are interested in this. Yeah, people, well, are, people are interested in bear baiting and the Nazis. Well, I'll, I'll disagree about the bear baiting. You're mixing things up here. I'm not saying the whole world is royalist. I'm not saying that we that Britain should be a monarchy. I'm saying that it's, it's an example of British cultural power throughout the world. The fact that this program has gripped the imagination of the planet. It doesn't matter whether the country who has funded the drama is American or British. So would you right. say Dynasty was an example of American soft power? 
Well, I would say that I would say that the, the program Dallas actually was in the early 1980s. It informed many people, rightly or wrongly, about the American dream. But what it does that absolutely achieve? What do you think soft okay, power means? This is what we're going to do. We are recording another episode. You of should let her talk. On this is terrible. Friday. Boring. Where we will look at the image of Britain going forward, because on January the 1st, Brexit will truly happen. So maybe we've bled over somewhat. Blimey now, there's me just thinking, I was just talking about a programme on Netflix and uh, it got got passions uh, riled up there. So very quickly, folks, just why don't we start to calm things down a little? Uh, let's give each other a communal hug. Republicans and monarchists alike, lovers of Thatcher and uh, haters of Thatcher alike. Steve O'Neill, what's been your takeaway of the last seven days, sir? Well, this is a bit of a cop-out, because it probably could be my takeaway of every seven days for the last few years, but stop making predictions. Things keep surprising me. So Dominic Cummings, I thought after the whole scandal with the Bernard Castle thing, he's not going anywhere for ages. Well, apparently he is. Uh, so yeah, no, no more predictions for me. Great. All right. I predict, however, that you'll be on the show again on Friday. Uh, but Emma uh, Burnell, I've done this before, but I'm going to do it again because it's it's actually a really important thing. Move your body. Move your body a lot. Move your body in whichever way that works for you. I've talked about yoga. I've talked about walking. I've talked about lots of different ways of moving your body. But honestly, nothing ends your depression. And, and you know, I, I, I've been very open about the fact that I've been going through that. Mike Holden, uh, you're in Darlington, aren't you? So up there in Darlington, yeah. uh, uh, Mike... Uh, sorry, Burnley. Uh, what's your takeaway the last seven days, sir? Uh, I've been using uh, the lockdown period to um, broaden my skills a little bit, and I've been doing a little bit of woodworking and um, making things in the shed. And uh, it's Christmas coming, and Daisy is a, a big Doctor Who fan, so my project at the moment is... I don't know if you can see that. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's hard, it's... Um, I can't... Uh, not too loud, she's in the house. But, uh, oh. yeah, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be a... A fitting for the cosmetologist. Oh, excellent. Fantastic. Uh, My takeaway is I watched Mangrove, um, the Steve McQueen show. um, Steve McQueen uh, film, sorry, which was uh, on on the BBC. And I must admit, I was thoroughly disappointed. It's a thing where something is displaying a historical event and you watch the the dramatisation of it and you have to put the history and the heroes to one side as opposed to the film and i'm seeing a lot of reviews for this film and they're all saying it's great it's not great it's terrible it's utterly terrible in the way it portrays frank critchlow and the the people at the center of this um story around british civil rights and for people that don't know um so mangrove was a restaurant in notting hill an area of London which is very close to my heart where I lived for some some 20 plus years and it was constantly raided from the late 60s to the early 80s by the local police force and not what it was raided something like 20 times and they never found any drugs or anything illegal ever they kept on raiding it by the early 1970s there's a very um, important court case 
uh, and they get dragged to the Old Bailey and the case is basically thrown out and um, a couple of the defenders, so there are nine defendants, actually defended themselves and took the local police force to pieces. And there were many celebrities at the time, Vanessa Redgrave's one of them, who basically supported the Mangrove nine or is it 11 i i forget um exactly the number um but it's one of the kind of seminal moments of british kind of like civil rights uh the fact it's so egregious that the police were just uh specifically one officer kept on raiding uh, this one restaurant so much so that by the the late uh, by the early 1980s uh, frank critchley the owner of the restaurant gets an undisclosed sum of money uh which is at over a hundred thousand pounds but they don't give, tell you exactly the amount because of a wrongful prosecution and harassment by, by the police so you have this poignant story but actually the film's terrible and it reduces literally all of the main characters just to be shouting talking heads but then you see all the reviews whether it's in the guardian or wherever say no it's five stars it's five stars and really what they are commenting on is this moment in british history the film is really, really bad. And, and my takeaway of the week is that hopefully we'll come a point when we can talk about civil rights and we can talk about people who have been oppressed and we can talk about uh, marginalised people and their depiction and actually say, you've been depicting people incorrectly. That's actually not that good. And I appreciate that black people, black Brits, black English people don't get our time in the sun very often in the media. So when you have the liberal white media you feel like they, well we've got to wrap them in some kind of level of cotton wool and actually say oh it's wonderful it's wonderful it's wonderful it's a bad film and i defy anybody with a real critical eye to watch it and who knows anything about the the subject matter and say it was done justice that's my takeaway of the week just be honest and just say actually you know just because it's done by a black person about a black topic doesn't mean it's necessarily good so that's been my takeaway. And normally takeaways are normally supposed to be quite positive. Nick Wright, <laughs> as always, as always, when you're on the show, we'll leave the best till last. What's your take over the last seven days, sir? Well, do you know what? Yours was interesting because I, I felt the same about um, The Trial of Chicago 7 with um, Aaron Sorkin, which was a bad film that people gave a good, lots of good reviews. There are some good performances here, by the way. Um, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, Sacha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman is, is amazing, but it's a bad film because it's very badly framed. But I have a positive one for once. Imagine that, me, Captain Positive. Well, um, I recommend a podcast called You're Wrong About, um, which if you are someone who has been watching The Crown and want to know more about, for instance, Princess Diana, um, they, have a fight, they have five episodes of their series, um, which is called You're Wrong About, called uh, about Princess Diana from, from her joining the royal family to her death. And it's just very interesting and well well framed. They talk through the history of what actually happened and why people might be wrong in their perception of what Princess Diana was and wasn't, uh, both in positive and negative ways. But it's a good series generally. They've got, uh, there's an episode about like what the presidential fitness test is like and why most people are wrong about what they think that is and various other things. So it's, it sort of sounds negative in the framing of it, but it's quite interesting because it can correct sometimes um, ways you might see certain historical events or, or things in, in, in the world uh, that maybe we have a kind of received wisdom about. So, yeah, it's good. Fab. Uh, right. So um, that's been just about us. And But before we go, um, it's only right and proper for me to say, Steve O'Neill, how can people catch up with you on social media if they'd like to do that? 
Yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm at uh, Steve Zero and Neil on Twitter. Uh, and also my uh, normal podcast, No Man's Land, is at No Man's Land. Uh, as Boyfield knows, you've been one of our stellar guests a couple of times. Um, and yeah, that's it. Though I was wrong about Stacey Abrams. Yes, uh, yeah, I meant to call you on that. I, I think she has been fantastic um, by all accounts in Georgia, but not vice president yet. No, uh, next administration. Uh, Mike Holden. I'm uh, at Mike Holden 42 on Twitter, on Facebook, and anywhere else you care to try and find me. Um, but um, Twitter's the, uh, the organ of choice for me. So. Mick Wright. Well, I am Broken Bottle Boy on Twitter, and you can also subscribe for free to my newsletter, which is a daily media uh, review newsletter called uh, Conquest of the Useless. It is on brokenbottleboy.substack.com. So, yes, pause that, take that link down, subscribe. Uh, um, uh, thanks for having me on the show that I co-founded, just to re- get that one in there again. And uh, there you I go, must away to write your book now. You do that, sir. Uh, there you go, folks. That's been us. Uh, touching down just a little on UK politics, because we've, we've literally put it all to one side for the last six, six weeks. We're going to be giving you another dose. You're going to get a double dose of British politics. We're going to see you again on Friday. We're going to record on Friday, which probably means the show will probably come out on Saturday, where we're going to take um, a bit of a look into the future. What will January the 1st mean for Britain uh, and how it's perceived throughout the world but also British foreign policy and our relationship with our nearest neighbours Europe how will that change on January the 1st we'll talk about that later on this week don't forget folks left of centre politics is right politics take care bye bye on Sunday the 9th of August in North Kensington a demonstration took place against the police which degenerated into totally inexcusable violence There may be some who believe that they have been the victim of injustice at the hands of the police. Others who, like parasites, feed on these beliefs and seek to turn them to their own advantage, deliberately creating hate and violence. These defendants are all guilty of the serious criminal offence. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.